Hi, welcome to episode six of the Fox Family Law Podcast. Today, we are here with my associate, Jamie Lee Denton, and an appellate lawyer, Chad Rubeck, who is going to talk to us today about family law and appellate court issues. Hi, everyone. We're happy to be back and happy to be here with Chad, one of the most well-known appellate attorneys in the DFW area, or even America, as some of his honors have shown. Um, You've been on Super Lawyers, spoken at law schools. You really do it all, Chad. So we're happy to have you here today. Thanks for having me, Jamie Lee. And like we discussed, um, I just want to introduce this and talk about appellate law and just the process of what you look for and what goes into the appeals process first. Thank you very much. The very first thing that I like to tell anyone who asks about appellate law is the sooner you start thinking about it in a case, the better. Uh, I wish that people start thinking about potential appellate issues as early as possible in every case. It seems like that's becoming more and more common in business litigation cases, much less so in family law cases, and it's something I couldn't commend more to, to family lawyers and to their clients. And if someone had no idea what an appeal is or what happens in the Court of Appeals or anything of that nature, what would you, how would you explain that process? Let them know that in the Court of Appeals, there's no witness stands, there's no court reporters, there's no new evidence. Uh, probably about half of cases, there's not even an in-person hearing. You can certainly request it. Uh, if the court grants one, the entire hearing, which is called an oral argument, kept 45 minutes. You know, that total for both sides and everything they have to say. But the most important thing to remember about a Court of Appeals oral argument or the Court of Appeals practice in general is there is no new evidence. If it's not the record in the trial court, it didn't happen. They can't hear about new things that happen. They can't hear about something you forgot to say in the trial court. If it's not in the record on black and white paper, it did not happen. So you're saying if someone said, oh, my, my husband did this to me last week, though, I really want to bring it up, that can't be seen or heard by a court of appeals. No new evidence, regardless of whether it happened after the trial court proceedings or beforehand, and people just forgot to mention it. If it's not in the record, it didn't happen. So how would you recommend attorneys can help prepare the record and help prepare for this during the trial or the discovery phase? First of all, just think about it. It's not in most people's radar screens. And I think having the appeal on your radar screen early, that takes care of 90% of the issues. Think about it. I let folks know that when you're about to file a petition for a divorce, think about the appeal before you even file your petition. When you're going to file your answer to the petition, when you're going to file your counterclaim, keep thinking about the appeal. Don't just think singularly focused on the trial court. Uh, when you have a case in the trial court, you can have, in my opinion, three objectives. The first one's obvious. The first one is, is on everyone's radar screen already, and that's to win in the trial court. If you're filing a motion, you want to win that motion, the trial court. If you're going to trial, you want to win that trial in the trial court. Okay, that's not something anyone needs any help on. That's something you all already know. If if that's not in your radar screen, then you have bigger problems than, than those that I can solve. Um, the second objective, and one that a lot of people don't think about here as often, is not just winning, but winning in such a way you're going to be able to maintain that win on appeal. It doesn't do you or your client any good at all. If you win in the trial court, you win resoundingly. You get the judge to sign a, an order favorable on your motion. You get to the judge to sign an order favorable on your final decree. 
on your modification proceeding, what have you, it doesn't help you ultimately if you can't win it. Your client is going to be thrilled when the judge signs that order saying, you know, your client wins and wins resoundingly, gets everything he or she wanted. But ultimately, your client's not going to be very happy with you or the process in general if you can't keep that win on appeal. So don't just think about winning. Think about winning in such a way you can maintain that win at the Court of Appeals. And to do that, you need to be especially careful when the judge actually loves you. And I know you're lovable, Jamie, and all your clients are as well, but that, that's where you need to be really, really careful because occasionally you'll be in a situation where the judge likes you a lot more than the judge likes your opposing counsel. And a lot of people think that's a great situation to be in. The judge will give me everything that I want. Yes and no, uh, as to that being an ideal situation. Uh, sure, it's great, but it's also fraught with danger. If a judge is going to give you everything to ask for, you need to be careful not to ask for anything you can't keep on appeal. Because if you ask the judge for more than you can keep, and the judge loves you so much, the judge is going to give you everything you ask for, is going to sign everything in front of the judge, well, then you need to deal with that on appeal. And your client's not going to be very happy if your case gets reversed on appeal and sent back for a do-over in the trial court because you asked for more than you're entitled to. It's going to mean the client's going to need to spend a lot more money, not just defending the case on appeal, but then redoing everything you've already done in the trial court. It's going to be a lot more stressful for the client because you're going to be dealing with that for another few years. It's not at all uncommon when a case is won in the trial court, in the family courts, but maybe everything wasn't done quite like the Court of Appeals wants. If it gets sent back for a do-over in the trial court, then gets sent back up on appeal, ping-pongs back and forth, it's going to cost the clients a lot more money than if everything were done the first time around in a way that the Court of Appeals would, would rubber stamp but would approve of everything that's been done. So that's that's objective number two. Uh, remember, you know, win the war. Don't just win the battle. It's a lot of fun winning battles, but it doesn't help you winning a battle if it's going to cause you to ultimately lose the war. Also, something to keep in mind is the judge who absolutely loved you the first time around, you know, give you everything you asked for, if you ask that judge to give you something and the judge you know, goes along with what you're asking for and gives you everything you're asking for and that judge gets reversed on appeal, that looks really, really bad for the judge. And the judge might not like you so much the second time around. You, know, you might have gotten you know, the sun and the moon. You might have gotten everything conceivable the first time around. If you get that judge ticked off at you for causing that judge to have a black mark to be moved, you know, reversed on appeal, having that judge's perfect record spotted, if you will. Next time around, the judge might be willing to pay the post counsel instead of you. Protect your reputation and your ability to advance your client's next case or the next client. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. The judge is going to remember that. You know, the judge is going to remember the one the judge really trusted and you know, the judge counted on to, to, you know, to keep the judge you know, going the right direction. And if the lawyer really betrays that trust, that's not just going to hurt that client. You know, years and years down the line, potentially even if that client has a different lawyer, that client, it's going to hurt that lawyer years and years down the line, even with different clients. So you definitely want to win in the trial court, no doubt, but win in such a way that you keep your win. It's going to be best for you. It's going to be best for your client. It's best for the legal system in general. So keep that in mind. Win, but win in a way you keep that win on appeal. Your third objective in my mind is, heaven forbid, there's a chance you could lose in the trial court. You want to make a record 
when you're in the trial court so that if, heaven forbid, you lose, you can get that loss reversed on appeal. Uh, I will often get calls from, from lawyers after the case is, is completely over saying, you know, uh, we just lost an appeal. Now what? Well, there's certainly some things an appellate lawyer can do to help things out at that point. But if you haven't thought about the appeal at all until you've lost, you're really going to hamstring the ability of the public lawyer to help you, help you win a reversal on appeal. Um, there are a lot of things that need to be done in the trial court as you're going along if you're ultimately hoping to win a reversal on appeal. Uh, other side of that coin is I will get calls from, from lawyers uh, who haven't thought about the appeal before they win on the appeal. And the other side has filed an appeal is making some points that seem pretty persuasive to the appellate court. That's not the time to be called an appellate lawyer for the first time. So I suggest to folks that they be thinking about the appeal throughout, whether they want to handle the appellate issues, the trial court themselves, or consult with an appellate court lawyer. Yeah, there's not a right or wrong there. Yeah. There are plenty of lawyers who handle their own appellate issues while they're also handling their, their, their trial court strategy. That's a-okay. I get no problem with that at all. But I think it's wise to at least be considering the possibility of consulting with an appellate lawyer to the extent you, have, as a trial lawyer, have any questions about, you know, about appellate issues. I liken trying to handle objectives two and three, you know, thinking about the appellate issues while also working on issue one, winning the darn thing to begin with the trial court, to juggling while driving your car. Not very easy to do, in theory it is possible. So I don't wanna say, you know, no way can't do it. But first off, you know, if, if you're going to be doing it, you need to be giving a lot of thought to both of them. You need to be expert at concentrating on the juggling and on the driving. You you can't just neglect the driving because you're busy juggling and vice versa. You can't neglect that one the, the driving because you're busy juggling. You, you, you can't neglect either of your two tasks. So sometimes it makes sense to visit with someone uh, there are, there are some lawyers who want to bring their public lawyers part of their team to be you know, to be third chair in every single thing they do. Maybe that's right for a case. Maybe it's not. Another option is to have an appellate lawyer as kind of a behind the scenes consultant. Maybe calling the appellate lawyer for an hour every few months, just saying, "Hey, listen, here's where we are in that case. Remember we talked about it a few months ago. Yeah, you have half an hour to visit with me about you know strategy for the next pleading we're going to be filing." Yeah. Another option would be just you know thinking about all these things yourself and not talking to the public lawyer at all. I would say that there's some CYA and value, CYA value involved in at least bringing this to the attention of your client or learning the case. So, hey, listen, yeah, there's a lot of things we're going to need to be doing at the same time. It might make sense for us to consult with an appellate lawyer from time to time as to crazy appellate issues that might come up in the trial court. And explain to them the three objectives you have. You don't just want to win in the trial court. You want to win in such a way that you can maintain your win on appeal. And if heaven forbid you lose, well, that you can get that you know, loss reverse on appeal. Just say, hey, listen, you know, this is something you know we might want to consider. You know, ultimately, that's a client decision. But I liken that to a, you know, a physician you know, mentioning the possibility of a patient consulting with a specialist in an area. Uh, if your physician mentions to you, you know, hey, you might want to talk to a hematologist about this. You know, they might have something to bring to the table that you know an internist wouldn't necessarily know. If the patient slash client just says, no, I don't want to talk to a hematologist, that's a okay. I think that the physician in that case, the internist in that case, has covered his tail. Uh, because then, if later, you know, things aren't quite what they seemed, well, the you know, the patient can't visit with the doctor and say, 
I wish you would have told me. I should have consulted with a specialist two years ago. So I think there's some CYA value there. Is you don't need to push your client to talk to an appellate lawyer, but I think that it is helpful. Not only can it benefit the case, but it can, can benefit the, the lawyer's reputation. If you just mentioned, hey, listen, if in the past we've brought in our appellate lawyer to visit with, you know, an hour or two every few months just to make sure that we're going in the right direction. Yeah. Is that something you would be willing to consider? I don't see a downside to doing that. There, I've talked entirely too much. Well, that actually leads to a question. So a lot of our clients come to us and they're overwhelmed by the divorce process in general, just thinking about how do I hire a lawyer and then how do I get this done? So now we've added an extra step of the appellate process. And so that may seem very overwhelming to a potential client. So how would you explain to a client that in a non, an, to, to kind of address those concerns and those anxieties of, oh my God, not only do I think about how to get my divorce, but now I gotta think about, about how do I appeal it if I lose or if I win. I would use the physician example I just used here. Say, hey, listen, when you go in and get some blood work and something just looks a little tiny bit different than usual, is it a bad idea to talk to a hematologist just to get you know, an hour of that person's time? I think that's something that if an intelligent person could appreciate. Now, it doesn't hurt to have someone, someone visiting as, part of the team, consulting is part of the team. Sometimes the client will want to speak to me directly. You know, want to be very hands-on, want to ask me his or her questions directly. Other times the client will say something like, you know, folks, you know, y'all are my trial lawyers. I trust you. If you want to consult with someone else and then bring whatever information back to me that you think is helpful, do it. But I don't want to know how sausage is made. That's fine too. And I've had both as clients. I've I've had some clients that I've never met, that I've never spoken to, uh, who've signed a consulting agreement with me, you know, saying, well, they'll pay me for an hour or two of my time here and there. But other than that, they've had no contact with me whatsoever. I've had other clients um, that I talk to more than I talk to the trial court lawyers because I have one of those clients right now who probably calls me two and three times a week. Um, I've, I've had days where I've talked to him more than I've talked to my wife. <laughs> and he just wants to make sure. Or my trial lawyers dotting all their eyes and crossing all their T's. And he has outstanding trial lawyers. And I tell him that every time I say, "Sir, you know, your trial lawyers doing a great job for you. They will let me know if there's something they need to visit with me about." But it gives him some comfort level knowing there's someone helping them. Yeah, just watching over what they're doing. So I think they love the fact that he's calling me and bugging me, and I'm saying nothing but wonderful things about the work they're doing. It, it reassures him, it gives him a comfort level with them because he doesn't feel comfortable always evaluating the work they're doing. He loves seeing someone else watching over their shoulder and saying, wow, they are great. They're doing a rock star job for you. It helps them and helps, helps them both. Another thing I wanted to ask was how you can prepare your documents or your pleadings to focus on what the Court of Appeals would be looking for at the trial court level. First off, think of the Court of Appeals justices. Just think of them. That helps a lot. Because you know, the judge has likely seen your client, if not heard your client speak a number of times at hearings. Court of Appeals judges will never see your client, will never hear your client speak. So think about how things are going to look on the written page for someone who doesn't know that your client is such a wonderful person. Uh, think about that when you're drafting affidavits. Think about that when you're drafting motions. Um, think about that when you're speaking on the record at a hearing. You or your client, either one, that the Court of Appeals justices won't have the benefit of, of seeing you know, how honest looking your client is and how, you know, how sincere and what a wonderful parent your client is, all that. 
All they're seeing is what's in black and white on the page. So I think keeping that in mind, that'll get you 95% of the way there. More descriptions, more elaboration, even if you think the trial court already knows, you may need to add a little bit more just to preserve the record. Sure, I mean, just, just think about you know, when I'm saying this, I'm not just saying it to the judge who already knows how wonderful my client is, what a wonderful parent, what a wonderful spouse, that sort of thing. I'm saying this for the benefit of people who've never seen my client and will never see him or her, will never hear his or her voice, who won't have all this background. You know. So maybe include a little more detail for the benefit of your other audience. And that's something to be very much cognizant of is you don't just have the trial court judges your audience. You have the Court of Appeals justices as your audiences, and potentially you might even have the Supreme Court justices as an audience you know, years down the road. I hope not. I don't. I don't want any of my friends to ever need my services because by the time you know someone's needing to, to visit with an appellate lawyer means they're not necessarily in the most fun situation to deal with. Uh, but yeah, I think that's yeah, that's the best thing to do you know, without getting into a lot of technical issues. Is just be cognizant. You have another audience. And they don't know your client like the trial court judge does. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Sometimes it's you have headlines and you're coming up against those, and you've got to remember, okay, let's take a little extra time and preserve this for the other audience. It's easier said than done. I mean, it's, it's really easy for me to say, oh, you know, be aware you have two audiences. Well, you already have a bunch of different things going on. You have short deadlines and whatnot. I don't want you to think that I'm good. I'm saying this is easy to do all this. It's not, and you know, that's why some trial court lawyers choose to consult with an appellate court lawyer. Yeah. Sometimes someone will say, hey, Chad, can you spend 20 minutes just skimming over this thing that I've drafted and make sure that it's going to make sense to an appellate justice in addition to the trial court judge. I know my trial court judge, the trial lawyer is gonna say, I know she's going to like this. I know she's gonna understand it. I know she's gonna be impressed with it. But when it goes to the second floor, to the court of appeals, are they going to understand it? I don't think it hurts sometimes to pay somebody for 15, 20 minutes of time. Yeah to have that second set of eyes look at it with a very different perspective. Okay, and I wanted to ask about one of your favorite uh, family law cases that you've appealed. Uh, sure. Can you talk a little bit about that. That's an easy one. Uh, the highlight of my career, uh, two years ago, March of 2019, I was able to win a, a significant win here in the Dallas Court of Appeals, and it followed a significant loss. Uh, a few months before that, I had a family law case. I was representing the ex-wife, and my client had missed the deadline. Uh, you know, long, long before you know I'd ever heard of her. You know, she was represented by someone else long, long ago. She missed a deadline. Specifically, the deadline was a two-year deadline to seek enforcement related to arguably tangible property, and that's the family code. You have two years to seek enforcement related to tangible property. Well. Her trial court lawyer didn't think that it was a deadline being missed, didn't think it was a deadline at all, because the issue that, that needed enforcing was money. And the trial court lawyer thought, ultimately rightly so, well, money is not tangible property. We don't have a two-year deadline to do that. Well, um, so trial court lawyer went on trial court. It was all good. Everything was great. Well, the other side, the ex-husband filed an appeal. And uh, I was representing, again, the ex-wife on the appeal, and I lost. Uh, I lost on appeal. I lost badly. I was at three to zero unanimous opinion by the three judges saying that money is tangible property. The two-year deadline did apply, and my client missed the two-year deadline, and so I lost. She can never enforce 
this family court judgment as to the the money because the money according to this three judge court of appeals panel was tangible property so i then sought what's called on bonk review which is review from the entire court the dallas court of appeals for example has 13 appellate court justice on justices on it uh, they generally divide up into panels of three justices for each case randomly assigned to three well so i lost three zero and i decided well this is the case it, merits my seeking review from the whole court. I'm going to ask all 13 of them to review this matter. And they don't do it very often. The reason they don't is it would defeat the purpose of dividing up into panels of three if every single time someone was unhappy with what their panel of three judges did. Well, we'll just ask every we'll ask all 13 to do it. There'd be no point of dividing up into panels of three. There'd be no efficiency gained in dividing up into panels of three if every time that someone was unhappy, which is every single case, uh, you know, they the, the, the party was unhappy, sought review from everybody. So I sought review from all 13 judges. In the interim, two of the three judges who were on my panel uh, left the court. Uh, there was an election in the interim. And uh, surprised me that the Chief Justice asked them to come back and sit on the en banc court. So I wasn't just arguing to the 13 justices who comprised the entire court. I was arguing to all 15 justices that the 13 who were on the court, plus the two who had been on my panel, but it's just uh, left, uh, left the court. And uh, I was thinking, oh, that's not a good thing. And I, the three people who ruled against me, who voted against me, all three of them are going to be sitting with the, you know, the, the other, uh, other justice on the court hearing this. So I was thinking, well, it's still worth a shot. Well, turned out I won in a 15-0 decision. Not only did I convince all the judges that knew nothing about the case, that the three had gotten it wrong. I convinced the three that they had gotten it wrong. And the uh, Dallas Court of Appeals and a 15-0 on bank decision ruled in my favor that money is not tangible personal is not tangible personal property. And consequently, there was no two deadline. So my client didn't miss the deadline. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, there has never been a 15-0 decision in any other case in the history of Texas jurisprudence. That's why I'm saying it's the highlight of my career. I'll never ever be able to do that again. <laughs> but I was thrilled to do it once, and maybe another day I'll get another 13 zero win. But I'm not ever going to get another 15 zero. Congrats! And that was a family law one. So. It was indeed. Perfect. Chakrabarti uh, versus Ganguly. I I feel have trouble pronouncing those two names, but uh, but it was it was a fun case. And I have one last big question for you. What's your favorite family law movie or TV show? The go old school on you. Kramer versus Kramer, 1979. I see. I haven't seen that. Am I going to be in trouble? You are not. I, I did not see it when it came out. I was in the first grade when these came out, and you were undoubtedly not yet born. <laughs> uh, in that case, the divorcing spouses were played by Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep. As you know, they're both outstanding actors. The movie tells the story of a couple's divorce and its impact on their young son. The reason I'm saying that's my favorite is because well, people didn't talk about it. People didn't talk about the impact of divorce on their small children. Uh, additionally, the film brought up a bunch of other issues people didn't talk about much in the 70s. Uh, gender roles, women's rights, father's rights, work-life balance, co-parenting. I, I didn't even know that co-parenting was a word in 1979, but co-parenting is a very important issue for spouses who are divorcing with kids. And this 1979 movie, Kramer vs. Kramer, brought that issue to the forefront. That was something people talked about in whispered tones. It was not something that was considered like dinner conversation. Yep. Now, it's something people talk about all the time, but not back then. 
So I would say because it brought a bunch of issues to the forefront of consciousness, that's going to be my call today. Okay, well, thank you so much. I'm going to go check out that movie. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Chad. Thanks for having me.